Well, I want to kick things off this morning uh, with some incredibly helpful advice uh, from the US government manual for all its volunteers who work in the Amazon jungle. It's how to react if you were to ever find yourself in the unfortunate situation of being attacked by an anaconda snake. Uh, Just for your information, uh, the anaconda snake is in fact the largest snake in the world. It's a whopping 35 feet long when it grows to its extreme. It can swallow, get this, uh, an animal up to 28 stone. So if any of you were confronted with an anaconda snake, no one in the room would be safe. So just in case, here's the checklist. Remember, this comes straight from the manual. Number one, If you are attacked by an anaconda, do not run. The snake is faster than you are. Number two, lie flat on the ground. Put your arms tight against your sides and your legs tight against one another. Number three, tuck in your chin. Number four, the snake will come and begin to nudge and climb over your body. Do not panic. (laughs) Number five. After the snake has examined you, it will begin to swallow you from the feet end. Always the feet end. Permit the snake to swallow your feet and ankles. Number six. Do not panic. (laughs) Number seven. The snake will now begin to suck your legs into its body. You must lie perfectly still. This will take a long time. Number eight. When the snake has reached your knees, slowly and with as little movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, very gently slide it into the side of the snake's mouth between the edge of its mouth and your leg, and then suddenly rip upwards, severing its head. Number nine, be sure to have your knife. Now, be honest. Who here would have the courage to carry out that plan of action? Anyone in the room? Absolutely nobody. Now, here's why I mention this. There is a point. There is a reason. We've been looking, haven't we, for the last few months at the story of the birth of the first ever church in the book of Acts. And to start with, everything is going swimmingly well. In the first ever sermon preached, uh, an incredible 2,000 people believed there in that moment. In the second ever sermon, a further 3,000 people believed. They are going from strength to strength. They have the favor of all the people. But as we move on through the story, chapters 3, 4, and 5 are really all about one major event. It's the persecution of the church. This brand new church faces opposition, pretty fierce opposition, for the first time. If you remember, the apostles, uh, they've just been jailed and threatened with the loss, not just of their goods and their possessions, but of their very lives. It's like suddenly they have to face up to the reality of suffering for their faith. And in the particular incident that we're going to be looking at and, uh, and unpacking today, we're going to see them handling the suffering and the threat, facing the danger, facing the possibility of death, with heroic courage. 
And this very much set the tone for the church from that point on. We know from historians that for the first 300 years, for about the time of the story we're going to be looking at today, round about to AD 300, there were 10 separate periods of systematic persecution against Christians in the Roman Empire, where they were imprisoned, plundered, tortured, even killed. In fact, before Constantine famously declared Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire, there were over a hundred years where it was completely illegal to be a Christian. At any point, if you were known to be a follower of Jesus, you could have all of your goods and possessions confiscated or worse. Yet we know from historic accounts that none of this could stop the rampant spread of Christianity. As one historian put it, the reason Christianity succeeded over dozens of other religions was because Christians died better than anybody else. They died the best, that's the reason their religion did the best. They died praying for their executioners, they died with joy, they died singing as they were thrown to the lions. Nobody died like they did. Nobody dealt with the torment, with the death, with the persecution, the ways that they did. There's even this incredible phrase that comes down to us from that era. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, he said, the blood of Christians is seed. He said, the more you kill us, the faster we grow. The more you kill us, the faster our message spreads. And so this morning... I want us to zoom in and take a look at this pretty remarkable story that's found in Acts chapter 5. And I want us to see what it has to teach us today as we seek to build a church here in Birmingham that deeply impacts our city. And really, more than anything else, what I want us to see is it takes phenomenal courage. It takes courage, doesn't it, to go public with your faith in the face of pretty fierce opposition. It takes courage to tell other people about Jesus. It takes courage to pray for the sick. It takes courage to live differently to the people around you. It takes courage to submit your desires to what God says. It takes courage. Listen, if you think that tackling an anaconda snake in the Amazon jungle takes courage you haven't really seen anything yet. Jesus said to his disciples, follow me. Then he continued, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. It takes tremendous courage to follow Jesus. And that is exactly what we see in the first church. Now, back in those days, there were certain individuals who were intentionally groomed for the heroic, people in military schools and academies. But the founders of the church, remember, they were just a bunch of ignorant fishermen and tax collectors. How did they get the heroic courage to face that kind of suffering and imminent death? Well, fortunately, the answer is right slap bang in the middle of today's passage. Without any further ado, let's pick it up in verse 17. Acts chapter 5 verse 17. The high priests, uh, high priest and his officials who were Sadducees, they were filled with jealousy. And so they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail 
awaiting trial. But an angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of the jail, and brought them out. Then he told them, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. Now, if I was them, going to the temple would be the last place I'd want to go. I'd want to, if I'd been miraculously released from prison awaiting trial, I'd probably want to go and hide somewhere. But here's what they did. Verse 21, so at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple as they were told and immediately began teaching. They need to understand that This would have been an incredibly busy place at daybreak. People would flood in their droves to the temple at this time of day in order to pray. And here are the apostles waiting for them to come so that they could tell the crowds about this new life that's found in Jesus Christ. Let's keep going. When the high priest and his officials arrived for the trial, they convened the high council, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. That would have been about 70 people. So this was a big deal. This was a substantial trial. They mean business. They're wanting to shut this thing down once and for all. Then they sent for the apostles to be brought from the jail for trial. When the temple guards went to the jail, the men were gone. So they returned to the council and reported the jail was securely locked with the guards still standing outside but when we opened the gates, no one was there. When the captain of the temple guard and the leading priests heard this, they were perplexed, wondering where it would all end. Then someone arrived with startling news. The men you put in jail are standing in the temple teaching the people. The captain went with his temple guards and arrested the apostles once again, but without violence, for they were afraid the people would stone them. Then they brought the apostles before the high council where the high priest confronted them. We gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name, he said. Instead, you filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him and you want to make us responsible for his death. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Now just to explain, the apostles knew that as far as it depends on you, you ought to live at peace with everybody. They knew that you don't return insult for insult. They knew that you do not retaliate with some kind of obnoxious attitude. They knew you're supposed to submit to authority. However, when the authority goes directly against God, the highest authority, then you have a choice to make. And so they say, well, we're just obeying God here. Incidentally, it's the same God who raised Jesus from the dead. Remember him, Jesus, the one whom you crucified? And get this, verse 31, after he was raised from the dead, then God put him, Jesus, in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel repent of their sins and be forgiven. We're witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. When they heard this, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. But one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, 
who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, he stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside the council chamber for a while. Then he said to his colleagues, men of Israel, take care what you're planning to do to these men. Some time ago, there was that fellow Theudas who pretended to be someone great. About 400 others joined him, but he was killed and all his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, around about the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too. All his followers were scattered. So my advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they're planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. And just by way of an aside, what do you reckon? Well, what, what do you think? Well, was this thing from God? Or was this Christianity thing just something that the disciples cobbled together? Well, I would humbly suggest that the evidence points to the former. I mean, 2,000 years on, we're still here, aren't we? I mean, it hasn't stopped yet. I love the irony of the story of Voltaire, the French philosopher. Back in 1778, just before he died, he predicted that within a century of his death, the Bible would be swept from human existence and Christianity would be snuffed out. It would be no more. The irony of it is that when he passed away, they auctioned off his estate and the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and his printing press, from which they distributed millions of Bibles all over the world. You see, God will not, and indeed cannot, be stopped. And so Gamaliel says, look, if it is from God, you're not going to be able to stop this thing. Verse 40, the others accepted his advice. They called in the apostles and had them flogged. Then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. And then come two of the most remarkable verses in all of Scripture. Look what it says next. The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continue to teach and preach this message. Jesus is the Messiah. That's what you think. I would suggest that the reason the church spread so rapidly was largely down to their tremendous courage. This courage that allowed them to look the opposition in the eye and refuse to back down. This courage that enabled them to obey God's call, even though it was personally highly costly. This courage that permitted them to proclaim the gospel with joy, even after a heavy flogging. Now look, if they needed courage, so do we. Admittedly, we may not be facing floggings and death right now. Although in some parts of the world, that is still a very real threat for Christians. And yet, 
Believers in some of those parts of the world, places like China and the Middle East, you know what, they, they look at what we are facing in the UK and they say, it must be awful for you to be a Christian in the UK right now. For starters, there's the secularism in our societies that renders our faith stupid, intellectually naive, weak, unworthy of any respect in the eyes of the world. There's the intimidation, as well as the mockery, the disdain, the ridicule. We're called bigots, aren't we, for not holding the narrow-minded view of secular society. And then there's full-blown discrimination. Stories of court cases and threats of imprisonment, they're only ever going to grow. Increasingly, we as Christians are being marginalized. Our freedom of speech is very much under attack right now. Can we openly state anymore what we believe the Bible teaches on gender, on sexuality, and on marriage? What will happen to us if we offer to pray for someone in our workplace? Will certain doors in the academic world, in the media, in politics be closed for us if we profess to be Christians? You don't need me to tell you is that living as a Christian in our society can be tough at times. Now, I think the problem is we're not really fully aware of all of this at the point when we become a Christian. I think the difference is in some parts of the world, Christians expect opposition from day one. We probably don't. It's like we're surprised by kickback and pressure when it comes. And so really, this story here in Acts 5 is incredibly important for us. Because I think one of our greatest needs right now is more courage. So here's what I want us to do in the time that remains. I want us to dig just a little bit deeper into this passage in order to try and learn some of the characteristics of courage. What is courage? What what does that actually look like? And then perhaps more importantly, how we can get this kind of courage today. So for starters, what characterized their courage? What did it look like? Well, two things. Number one, it valued character over appearance. Character over appearance. Faced with a room full of people who are itching for a reason to kill them, the apostles get up and very calmly say, we must obey God rather than you. For them, courage meant being principled in the face of danger and opposition. And so they were determined to do what is right, no matter what it looked like to others. Now, that is a huge challenge for us. You see, nowadays, I think people tend to value being popular over doing the right thing. A lot of the time, I think in our heart of hearts, we're more concerned with our image than with our conscience. But that is completely at odds with being courageous. The point is what makes you courageous is you don't care so much about the opposition. You don't care so much whether it means you're going to be unpopular. You don't care so much what other people are going to think of you. 
the courageous way to live is to stick with your principles, what you think is right, what you believe is the right thing to do in this situation, in spite of danger and opposition. That's the first characteristic of courage we see here in this story. Courage says, this is right, and I'm going to stick with this, though it's going to be difficult for me, though it might even hurt me, though it might even be fatal for me. That's the first characteristic of courage. Here's the courage. Here's the second one. It had a commitment to truth over feelings. A commitment to truth over feelings. Now, once again, this whole way of thinking is very much at odds with the prevailing view of our culture today. You know, previous generations, they had a commitment to something greater than their own hearts. I mean, we used to believe in a higher truth, a higher reality, which said that there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. And if my inner desires, if my heart wants to go another way, well, back then we tended to tell it to shut up. We tended to say, be quiet. We tended to submit to the higher authority. We certainly don't believe in that anymore. We believe the truth isn't so much something out here, it's more a case of what you find in your own heart. It's like nowadays, there is no truth other than what you discover to be fulfilling for you personally. That's what's true. In fact, as I was channel surfing recently, I don't even know which film it was, Uh, I just saw enough to hear, I think it was Michael J. Fox, say to a woman, I'm doing what I'm doing because it's right. Do you know what she said? Of course, you don't know what she said. You don't even know what film it is, but I'll tell you what she said. She said, there is no right and wrong. There is only feeling and opinion. The average person in the UK believes that absolutely. There is no right and wrong. It's a matter of feeling and opinion only. And if you dare to say, I believe there is a right and wrong, there is a higher moral order in the universe you tended to get laughed at by people, or even worse. Now, the problem is, you cannot be courageous while simply following your feelings. It's like you've destroyed even the possibility of courage when following your heart is the main mantra you live by. The very nature of courage is to say to your feelings, be quiet, shut up submit to something higher because your feelings are always ever going to say run for your life look after number one your feelings are going to be telling you don't lose that if it makes you happy it must be right your feelings are saying who's got the right to tell you what's true your feelings are saying this is what's best for you so do it don't you see before any act of cowardice or compromise, your inner feelings say, well, at the end of the day, all truth is relative. That's what makes you a coward. Listen, it takes real courage to say to your feelings, be quiet, shut up. There's a greater truth at play here. Although it will mean pain and sacrifice, this is still the right thing to do. It's costly, it's hard. It's counterintuitive. It's the opposite of how pretty much everyone else around us is living. 
But that is what we are called to do. That is how we're called to live as followers of Jesus. Because he's Lord. He's Lord over every area of our life. And we're to submit all of our preferences, our desires, our dreams, our feelings, the longings of our hearts to him. Now that is a huge challenge, isn't it? It's a huge challenge because nowadays we tend to go for appearance over character and our feelings over truth. We talk about fulfilling the self and following our heart rather than telling our heart and our feelings to submit to something greater. But at the end of the day, if you can't tell your feelings to be quiet, you'll never ever do anything truly courageous because your feelings won't want to sacrifice, ever. It's like you have no basis for sacrifice. You have no basis for true courage. So there you have it. What characterizes courage, number one? Character over appearance. What's the right thing to do over how it makes us look? Number two, commitment to truth over feelings, following a greater truth than what our heart is telling us. Let's move on then to look at how we actually get this kind of courage. Well, there are two options. I'm going to call them defiance and hope. Start with defiance. Defiance basically means looking at yourself. It means you preaching to yourself and saying, you can do it. If you have a lot of fear, if you feel like I'm not brave or courageous enough Here's how you handle it according to one popular website. It says this, visualize yourself successfully doing the behavior that you fear. See yourself doing the thing you fear. Then imagine yourself in a situation without all those terribly unpleasant consequences you've been scaring yourself with and think will happen to you. And then enjoy the feeling of mastery that comes with having dealt successfully with the situation that has made you fearful. Then you'll become more confident and less fearful. In other words, this kind of reaction, this kind of defiance is a form of courage where you concentrate on yourself and you bring yourself to a place of believing that you have the inner power to overcome. By the way, I do know people who have done that. I know that is one way to be brave. Just like, I'm going to make it. I'm going to succeed. That these bad things aren't going to happen. I can do it. But I do think there's a pretty big flaw with this kind of defiance. I mean, if banishing your fears means saying, these things can't happen, these things won't happen to me, then ultimately you're living in unreality. It's like the message here is, the way to become courageous is to be delusional and filter out big parts of reality. Now the alternative to this, the alternative to defiance is hope. And this approach to courage is the complete opposite. Hope doesn't start by looking at yourself and saying, I can do this thing. No, it focuses outside of yourself. And that's certainly what we see happening here in Acts chapter 5. Notice how it says in verse 32, we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit. Now, what are they looking at? What are they witnessing? What are they seeing? Well, we get the answer in the previous two verses. Verse 30, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead 
after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. Now, without wishing to get too technical on you, the word translated here as prince also crops up later on in the New Testament in Hebrews 12, where we're called to run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Here's the word champion, same word as we get here in Acts chapter 5. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honor at the right hand of God. And you see what this is saying? There is something about keeping our eyes on Jesus, our prince, our champion, that fills us with hope. That there's something about looking at the courageous example of our leader that makes courage rise up in us. So let's close this out by looking at Jesus. What is it that we can learn from his example? How did he go about banishing fear? How did he get the courage to go through with the cross? How did he do it? But if you will, let's cast your mind back to him in the Garden of Gethsemane, wrestling in prayer shortly before his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. If you're familiar with the story, do you see him saying, I can do this. I know I can. Do you see him saying, Give me this cup, this cup representing all that was to come, his death and the horror of it. Do you see him saying, I can't wait to drink this? No, if you remember, he says, Father, please let this cup pass from me. He says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. He's sweating blood. He knows what it's going to feel like. He's afraid. There's certainly not a whole lot of banishing fear going on. So how did he do it? If he didn't look at himself and tell himself, I can do this thing in order to banish fear, if instead he looked at something else that enabled him to do it in spite of his very real fear, what was that? Have another look at what it says in Hebrews 12. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. What was the source of his courage? What was it? Joy. I I hear a, a murmur of joy. It was the joy awaiting him. Let me ask you a question. Again, I'm after a response here, okay? So listen carefully. When Jesus was in heaven, and the question is asked, should you come to earth? Should you make yourself mortal and vulnerable? Should you face infinite pain? And the answer is yes, because of the joy. What joy did Jesus not have in heaven that he can only have on the far side of all of that suffering? What was he looking at? Us. Us. Surely the only possible joy... 
he could have been looking at that he wouldn't have had unless he went through the suffering, the pain, the horror of the cross was us. He thought of redeeming us. He thought of rescuing us. He thought of saving us. He thought of lavishing his love on us. He wasn't looking at himself. He wasn't saying, I can do it. That These bad things aren't going to happen to me. I know I can do it. Bring it on. Now, he was afraid. In other words, he wasn't delusional. He saw reality. But he still had something that enabled him to be courageous in spite of his fear. What was it? The joy awaiting him. And so, what can we learn from this? How are we supposed to get courage when we are afraid? Well, you do that. You fix your eyes on Jesus, the prince, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Witness, reflect on what he's done for you. Look at him, remind yourself of him being courageous for you. And slowly but surely, over time, that will make you more and more courageous too. Listen, there's something about knowing Jesus that enables us to experience joy even when we are experiencing suffering and pain. I mean, isn't that what we see here in verse 41? The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. You know, in becoming a Christian, I don't think we always fully count the cost. So I reminded you earlier, Jesus spoke of giving up everything to follow him, of taking up our cross, dying to ourselves, living for him as Lord of every area of our lives. At the end of the day, the key question is whether it's actually worth it, whether we are able to see past the things that will need to change in us, change in our lives, if Jesus is Lord. The reprioritizing of our dreams and ambitions, the opposition that we will face from others, whether we are able to see past all of that to the substantial joy of knowing Jesus. Paul was able to say in Philippians 3 verse 8, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. And let's be real, probably there are lots of spots in your life right now where you need courage. Many of you perhaps are increasingly aware of the cost to you of following Jesus as Lord. There's no denying it, we're called to a life of sacrifice, a life of daily surrender to him. And the only thing, really the only thing that makes sense of any of it, the only way to get courage to persevere, 
The only source of joy through it all is to look to him. Look to Jesus. Consider what he has done for you. Now, I don't know. Maybe you're not completely there right now. If truth be told, perhaps there's not a whole lot of joy in you as you think of Jesus. But here's the question. If, and for some of you it might be a big if, but nonetheless, go with me on this one. If it was possible for you to find so much joy in him that it gave you the kind of courage that we've been talking about today, wouldn't you be interested? Wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? So here's my appeal to pretty much everyone in the room. Please, get to know Jesus better. Enjoy relationship with him. And as you get to know him more, let wonder and courage fill your heart increasingly.